I've said it to my child millions of times. I'm sorry that happened to you or, you know, whatever that situation was or that wasn't okay or that person wasn't kind. It's really important because they have to know that ultimately we're there for them and not that system. It's one system. Yeah. You know, that doesn't make them, but, you know, our life and our home and the world that we create with them is way more important. Welcome to Rethinking Education. Education's critical friend. Hello, friends and fellow inhabitants of late capitalism. I hope this finds you well. For my final offering of 2023, I bring you a most fascinating conversation with the illustrator, author, and fellow earthling, Eliza Fricker. Eliza is an incredibly talented writer and illustrator who has written three books to date, the first one being The Family Experience of PDA, An Illustrated Guide to Pathological Demand Avoidance, the second one being Can't Not Won't, a story about a child who couldn't go to school, and most recently Thumbsucker, an illustrated journey through an undiagnosed autistic childhood a memoir of Eliza's own experience. And it's the second of these books that we'll be talking about mostly today, Can't, Not, Won't. It's a fascinating read, funny and heartbreaking in equal measure. And Eliza's illustrations and wry observations really shine a very interesting light on what it's like when your child finds that they are no longer able to attend school. And that title, Can't, Not, Won't, is important because sometimes people place the problem in the child, don't they? They just say that they're being obstinate or that they're refusing to go to school or that they're not resilient or hardy enough. And often, as Eliza makes the point, they're often incredibly resilient and hardy. They put up with things that they find very difficult for a really long time until it gets to the point where they are no longer able to engage in school life. And it's very tragic when we get to that position because there's lots of conflict and pain and confusion and just it's very, very difficult situation to deal with. It really is a great read and it's recommended highly to any teachers and school leaders, as well as for any young people with barriers to attendance and their families. And there is no shortage of young people in this boat. To date, we, um, we seem to be at the point of approaching 2 million persistent absentees in this country, a figure that has grown by almost double in the last couple of years alone. And so Eliza has rather cunningly tapped into a growing market, but I think that she would agree that it would be better if that market didn't exist at all. Or maybe she wouldn't think that. I don't know. I should ask her. There are many lessons to learn from this conversation, and I would love to hear your thoughts. The best way to keep in touch is via the Rethinking Education Roundup, a monthly newsletter with news of any latest podcasts, blogs, conference news, there's free resources sometimes, and updates about the Education Policy Alliance, which is very exciting development of which more soon. If you are interested, you can sign up at the Beehive link. I won't say it because it's quite an annoying spelling, but you can find a link in the show notes and you can reply to those emails and let me know what's going on with you. We also have monthly Zoom calls for friends of the podcast. 
It's usually on the first Saturday of the month at 11 a.m. UK time. If you'd like to join other like-minded people to plot and scheme or simply to listen to what others have been up to and what they have to say, please feel free to join us. It's free to do so. Again, the best way to keep in touch and to get the Zoom link is via the Rethinking Education Roundup. See that link in the show notes. Okay, without further ado then, I will hand over to my recent fascinating conversation with Eliza Fricker. I hope you enjoy the show. Let's education. So we're here to speak um, mainly about your story, I guess, the story of, of your experience of um, being a parent uh, of, of a child who struggled uh, to attend school or has struggled to attend school. Um, and you've written a couple of books about this, haven't you? One is about PDA, the path, is it, what's that, pathological demand? Yeah, pathological avoid- demand avoidance. It's a lovely term, yeah. <laughs> Right. Let's let's briefly alight on that first. Well, what's what is PDA for anyone who isn't um, aware? It's, it's part of being autistic, but it's a different, slightly different presentation. Um, it's, I suppose, the easiest way to describe it is that the anxiety is so high um, that it creates a difficulty to do demands. Um, and those demands can be internal or external. Um, so that can come from the individual themselves or it can come from other people. So it really requires quite um, a different way of um, approaching. So you need to be able to really be quite flexible with that person. They need to feel quite a lot of control and autonomy because of that level of anxiety. So in a lot of ways, it's a very, I find it a very positive thing because it allows you to kind of reconsider a lot of the parental and societal norms, which we have a lot of, mm-hmm. and do things differently. So I, you know, tried to do this, the first book I did was, I think, quite positive about different ways you can approach it and kind of let go a little bit as a parent in the way that you think that you should parent. Um, because often I think for parents, they come up against very quickly when they're trying to parent in the way that they think they should with a child with a PDA profile. Um, so, yeah. I see. Okay, thank you. So that's the the, fam- the book is the family experience of PDA, um, and I haven't read that one, but I have read the the book that you wrote more recently. And for those of you watching on video, you can see now uh, the, this book is called Can't Not Won't, and you can also see where it says. The Sunday Times bestseller at the bottom, which is exciting. Congratulations on that! How were you surprised by how how well this book went down? Like it seems to have been very widely widely read and embraced by people. Yeah, I was. I was. I was really, really surprised actually, because you've got to remember when you're going through these experiences as a parent, it's really isolating. You know, standing at the school gate and having a very different experience from those other families. So. To write a book that resonates with so many um, and validates, that's kind of the feedback I've had. So many families have said, look, this is us. And I think that when I initially started writing it, it was very much missing the mark. The blog that it started on was very much our story. And it, it's kind of evolved over time that it isn't. It's it's a representation of a parent and a child, but it's actually so many other people's experience. So it's kind of become a shared experience, if you like, which is a lovely thing for people to have that connection and that community when 
you do feel so isolated. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And that, I mean, that, that comes through very strongly in the book, um, which is illustrated, very heavily illustrated for, for anyone who isn't familiar with it. Um, so uh, basically almost every page is a bit of there's a bit of writing at the beginning and the end. And I love how it's beautifully done. It's really lovely and it's very moving and affecting. And it's also lovely how it's sort of addressed to your daughter, isn't it? There's like after every few pages, there's a little note direct directed towards her and then at the back you know the the, the sort of the afterword is, is directly um directed or addressed to her um and you sort of say thank you for allowing me to 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 do this because obviously you know you're sharing something that's hugely personal and has you know obviously been a very painful journey at times um was that a, was that a conversation that you had where you sort of, sort of sat down and said I'm thinking of doing this thing how would you feel about it how did that come come about yeah, we did. We had a conversation about it um, and we do chat about it. And I think that she's seen and she hears, she's around it. She very, she, she, she absorbs what, what is around her constantly. So often our way of communicating is a little bit different. So it's very much what she picks up on, but um, you know, we she knows that it's, it's how, you know, I, I work as an advocate, but that's kind of working still for her. It's, it's trying to, get things to change for everyone with this work so I think that that's you know a validation as well for her experiences which weren't positive and and to be honest even though she's in a good place now the things that she still struggles with are the things that I still want to smash the walls down politely with which is <laughs> that it's still a very othering system um you know it's very difficult to keep a positive message when a system that still separates these kids out and whether or not it means to or not even those systems of so-called support are very separating yeah absolutely like the, the language is people often parents often talk about battle don't they they talk about it feels like they're doing battle with the authorities with all of these the jungle of jargon and so on and the, all of these people with um, very particular, strange-sounding job titles, and like we're going to get into all of that. But you, you clearly hit a or tapped into a rich seam. Like there is, there's, there's been a few other books recently that have done incredibly well, haven't there? There was the Heidi, is it Mayveer's book? What was her book called? Uh, what was it? I'm having a memory block now. What was it called? My child is not broken. That's it. My child is yeah. not broken about um, being the parent of, of neurodivergent children. Uh, mm -hmm. And Naomi Fisher's books have done very well, who I know you work with closely. And the Square Pegs book was also like in the top 100 books globally. It wasn't even just the top 100 education books. It was literally like in the top 100 books on Amazon mm -hmm. for a while there. Um, and so there's something happening, isn't there? It seems like there's maybe this is like a post-COVID awakening or something of people coming to a dawning realization that there are many many young people who are not being well served by the education system and actually and it's interesting that it's parents voices in each of those cases the square pegs book is largely parents and naomi writes partly from her experience as a, as a psychologist but also as a parent obviously you're coming at it from a parent and heidi the same and that's amazing. It's something that is, is, is for, for far too long, I think, been absent the voices of parents and carers in the education debate. So I very strongly welcome this 
this development um because like i say you know there's clearly something going on we have in the book you talk about <clears throat> the 90 percent attendance rate don't you which is the that's the limit at which um that's what the, the definition of a persistent absentee isn't it and so when you first hear that figure you sort of think 90 percent sounds quite high but if you if you spread that out over a year that's four weeks of school that, that's been missed and that's a lot of time on top of all the holidays that people get four weeks is is a lot and many of you know many many young people miss a lot more time than that as well but there's two million now aren't there there are two million persistent absentees in this country and that number's almost doubled in the last like two or three years um and that's just so many young people <laughs> it's like there's only nine million in total so it's like it's a huge percentage of young people who are voting with their feet um and it's not fun you know as you know as well as anyone, if your child is absent, you get all of this hassle and threatened with fines and people coming around to your house and meetings and whatnot. And it's, it causes huge stress in the home. And yet all of these children and young people are choosing that strife over just going to school. Like I think that that tells us something very important about their experience of school you know that it's that it's not just you know just going sit in the back of a classroom and just get on with it obviously they're experiencing stress that they consider to be greater than the stress that they're experiencing through non-attendance so there's something something happening here isn't there yeah I don't think though that that I think that there's a term that's used a lot that actually uh it's quite stingy for a lot of parents, and that's the the word resilience. Because I think for our children, they're very, very resilient. They will actually go in quite a lot before they stop being able to go in, or they start not to be able to go in all the time. Um, they are really, really trying to go in, and and that's why I'm so pleased my editor went with the title because most children do want to go it's just that they can't and by the time they get to that can't bit they've already been trying really really hard um the emotional impact of the stress that is often seen and this is why it's so important to have the parents voice in this is mm -hmm. often seen at home and not seen in school you know schools don't often see these children um there's no evidence for a lot, a lot of teachers of this distress. It's only parents saying um, that it's very, very difficult at school. By the time you're saying that as a parent, um, it's very difficult. It's very, very difficult as a parent to talk to a teacher and say, my child is really struggling because no parent really wants to have to admit that or to admit what that looks like at home. Yeah. And for parents at home, that level of distress is pretty miserable. You know, that's children often being quite violent, um, not being able to eat or sleep or ticking um, or self-harming. To go then to a teacher and say this is happening, to then have a teacher who is, you know, admittedly teachers are under a lot of stress, but they're firefighting too. So they mm -hmm. will often say, well, it's fine here, it's fine here. Um that then throws it back on the parent. So that message to the parent is, well, they're fine here, so it must be located in the home. If the distress is being shown at home but not in school, then it must be a home issue. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's something that um, 
there's a phrase that you often hear, isn't it, is that we're locating the problem in the in the child, right? When the when there when there's, there are issues around attendance or mental health or whatever it might be, it's like there's something wrong with the kid, rather than maybe there's something about this monolithic inflexible system that, that just doesn't fit this huge diverse population of people but that's how diagno- that's how you get diagnosis the model for diagnosis is locating it in the individual what we are asking now and what we know now is we need to look at the impact of environment on the individual and then when we do that we take that onus off the child because at the moment while we do that we are putting that on the child the child to change to appease the adults Mm. um that's there's no point to diagnosis if we're doing that because we wouldn't be saying that to someone with a with a visible disability but we do this with the the disabilities that we can't see yeah yes so so can we go back to the start if you're happy to do so to to when this sort of first i know that you know in the in the book you talk about how you know it was clear that you know from a quite an early age that your daughter was um finding it difficult to to do certain things in even at nursery but when did this sort of begin for you and and can you just sort of chart us through obviously you've been through a lot and you know um just like a sort of a potted summary if you like of like some of the key I don't know if you'd want to call them milestones, but you know the key sort of developments um, as this as this has, un- has unfolded for you. Well, and this is probably slightly rose-tinted glasses that I think we all do as parents. But before preschool, um, we had a before nursery rather, we had a really really nice time. We were, um, you know, I did a few kind of part-time or jobs. Um, we were setting up our design business. I had a lot of time that I could be at home with my daughter. We were at home together most of that time. And we live in a nice town by the sea with a good group of friends who had kids at the same time. And, you know, I sort of, because I like to joke about things, but it was kind of like being on the being on the dole, but with kids, you know, we just kind of potted around, <laughs> went down the beach and, and went to play groups and sat around each other's houses and had cups of tea. And it was a really quite <laughs> nice time. We didn't have much money, but it was a nice time. Um, and so there were probably little things of which we would have put down then, I think, to shyness. So sort of wanting to gravitate probably more towards me, like if grandparents came round, but there wasn't anything there particularly. I wasn't kind of comparing myself at that point to other parents. We all seemed mm. to be tired and, uh, you know, working our way through it. It wasn't till um, nursery when there was immediately huge amounts of distress um, from my daughter being left, huge amounts, and when we picked up. Um and, you know, then you're thinking that's a big change from being at home to going into that environment. But that trajectory carried on. So it carried on through um, to school. So n- never being able to be left without a level of distress. And the narrative around that was very much, well, she'll learn to get on with it. You know, she'll she'll get she'll get there with it. Um but those kind of early temper tantrums, as they're called, when they're sort of two or three, didn't really go away for us. They were linked to that kind of overwhelm of being in a different environment and that transition into the other environment. Um, 
Mm-hmm. And that was really sad to see, you know, from going from, like I said, having quite a nice sunny time on the beach with friends to this um, was difficult. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. Um, <clears throat> and so, and so, when when would you say that it became an issue in terms of uh, attending school or or, or playgroup? Um, so. <laughs> the distress sort of increased if you like with age so rather than it starting to go away the afternoon pickups were particularly challenging um and I think that was when I went to the GP I think maybe I'd been a couple of times and just said you know this isn't getting any better and um she was at quite a nurturing little school in town um but they were saying at playtime she was going and sitting in the head teacher's office um and struggling then to sort of engage more and more with class activities, things like assemblies, and they do a little show and tell or school plays. She was struggling with that. So I think that was when I spoke to the school and said, said do you think she could? there could be something else? And they were saying, well, maybe. And I spoke to the doctor, and then um, she went forward for an assessment um, for, for autism. And, and that was, I think, an hour and a half, and then she was diagnosed on the day right at, at, at what age about seven yeah right okay and we'd moved schools by then so she'd been at this small little primary school we'd had a bit of a grim parents evening where they were kind of saying you know we're not sure what else we can do really and so we thought as a reset we'll move her to a school that was near our house where she knew more people and that kind of was a little bit of a reset temporarily but it was still difficult for her um yeah and how how was that so you, you got the diagnosis were you expecting that by that point I think so. I'd read something. It was brilliant. It was a little letter someone had written in the Huffington Post, and it was a letter to my daughter. And it, I don't think I'd read anything from that perspective before. And it really chimed. And and I thought, mm, maybe it's this because you're seeing more things as they get older. They're going to sleepovers, or they're just you know friends are talking about they've just put their children to beds now. And we didn't have those things that wasn't sort of happening. Those Not that we were in any hurry developmentally, but, you know, we could see there were more things that she was not kind of doing the same as her as, as her peers. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, and, and also there's some, there's some funny bits in the book where you're sort of, there's like a little thing about different types of parents and there's like, you know, super, super like efficient business mum or whatever and there's mum who's got like 75 million followers on on instagram and just like you know posting pictures of her immaculate house and there's lots of that isn't there with with parenting there's a sort of like a like often quite even explicit comparing you know children's and 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 show showcasing their achievements and what have you and there's lots of sort of internal like oh wow is there something wrong with me or is there something wrong with my child because you know other kids are having a different experience yeah and I think often you know quite you've just got this sense of things often you're just thinking this there's no way this would happen I remember going to a friend's for dinner once and there were just her she had two boys and they just it was um it was something out of a kind of old children's novel they just said goodnight in their striped pyjamas and got into bed with their 
books and said goodnight and then off they went to bed and I remember thinking wow that actually does happen in some houses <laughs> and you yeah. just know it wouldn't work you know where pair and that's the other you know I've, I've done quite a lot about those different um narratives parental narratives because you know it won't work and this is something Naomi and I talk about a lot you know where uh your traditional parenting is very much well you know just toughen up or tell them to do this stuff and they'll do it you know it won't work you know <laughs> so you've probably tried it it's gone horribly wrong um but yeah it's it but it's very early on you you realize that stuff isn't going to work for your child yeah yeah absolutely and, and so when, when you got the um the diagnosis did that change anything materially in terms of the provision that she was receiving no, I mean, I sort of, you know, I'm a visual communicator thing. So in my head, it was literally these doors would be flung open to sort of this new way <laughs> with this diagnosis. They had the information. I mean, it certainly gave us something. It gave us the ability to um, do things differently and, and, and not see our child as, as um, disruptive or not, you know, any of those negative things. Mm -hmm. um, but in terms of what it does in the educational setting, it doesn't lead to an awful not lot. Um, I think I show the actual moment we get the diagnosis and we're given some printed out sheets of paper. Um, that's it, you know, off you go. There were some parenting courses, but everything was very generic. It was sparse and it was generic. Um, and that was certainly not something that anyone wants about themselves or someone they love is to be seen as a kind of generic thing. Um, yeah, yeah, of course. And so, it's, I mean, I think that probably the word alienating comes to mind a lot. As Through reading through the book again this morning, it seems like it was just an alienating experience and you capture very acutely with these sort of gentle right observations of um of the, the types of people that you meet when your child is struggling to attend school and all of the meetings that you go through and the the jargon that is used and you know people saying oh you need to go and see the support inclusion team not the inclusion support team or something you know like um so i wonder if you could sort of paint a picture if you can of of the like the feeling like the, the feeling of, of of what it's been like in terms of what it's like when you're when your child is struggling to attend like how would you how would you summarize that that experience um i would say there's quite a few key words i would use i would say it's absolutely baffling the system it's completely confusing you know there's all of those different systems and divisions um it's not as easy as writing an email and someone will come and help you. There's so many different people involved and it almost feels like it's stalling tactics around that. You know, you go to see someone else who then send you off to see someone else. So I think ultimately, as well as it being utterly frustrating, it's completely boring. I remember thinking I'd become a really boring person these systems are boring the people I talk to are boring and I've become boring just trying to navigate it all and then you 
you're very isolated with that because how do you communicate all of that all these dull dull systems that you're stuck with to friends and family you know you're not the person that people are going to be that interested in talking to when you're trying Mm. to communicate this this has become your life you know um and the other bits are not seen and I think this is the thing that you know not only was my daughter not seen as an individual we were you know you're what you're interested in what you want to what 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 you know excites you all of that is lost because you're in these boring boring systems yeah Um, boring and baffling and that's that's quite the combination isn't it because it's like mm -hmm. like like you were saying that you can't even really explain to people what's going on because sometimes a yeah it's like it's not not a fun conversation to be having and b um it's confusing and you haven't really got a clean narrative that you can explain what's happening here um no. yeah okay and so 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 you had the diagnosis at about age seven um and you got just some paperwork but it didn't really seem to change that much and then how was so your daughter remained in school is that correct until the end of secondary school although there was it was not plain sailing yeah that's right so yeah I think the, I mean I'd say that so it was as I said earlier we were sort of already struggling but then I think that um the wheels really started to come off in um I think they call it key stage two so they lose their teaching assistance then mm-hmm. and they kind of ramp up the learning so it becomes a lot more academic and it was a combination of those things she lost that person in that room that wasn't a teacher that she felt safe with and that she could co-regulate with and and that was really where we started to see that plus you know the starting to talk about the next stages um the sats all of that lots of different changes residential all of that that's when it started to really kind of get very difficult then right yes and then it seems that um that it was the transition to secondary school that was the that was the where where it became super difficult and that was when did your daughter attend for one day is there's a one page day. that says the first and only day of mm. of secondary school which um, i have to add it's in the book but they they said they were deeming the day a success from that one day yeah tell me more about that i know it says that there's actually a very it's quite a really moving <laughs> part of the book so there's, there's that there's that picture I've got that picture of my son grinning on the on his first day of of mm. um junior school and that mm. picture of just like and it wasn't long before he he wasn't grinning like he's generally been you know what you might call a square peg in a square hole type kid like he hasn't really struggled with attendance um at school but he definitely didn't enjoy it like he found it a boring he found it a drag um he found it just like unstimulating um mm. and and but yeah so that picture of uh yeah the first and only day of secondary school and there's a crack down the mm. image i don't know if people can see that very easily it's mm. challenging my brain to to point the opposite page at the camera um and then yeah and they said we are deeming the day a success mm. um was that when you when you picked up or was that was that in a meeting afterwards what was uh, when how did that um, line come out 
Yeah, so that, I mean, obviously things had got really, really bad by that stage. Transition hadn't been done. You know, we the Ed Psych said there should have been an enhanced transition. We didn't see that. I think we had one extra morning of her going there um, and not being able to engage at all. It was very clear that things were not going to be very positive in 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 that in that next place but we didn't really have an awful lot of choice at that point because we had a child who wanted to be doing what their friends were doing so we very much had to go with that at that point the anxiety mm. was so high that we couldn't really offer anything else we had a child who was really in survival mode by this time with very very poorly because the last couple of years um we hadn't we had been asking for more support um and it was it was very difficult to get any more support and the attendance had already dropped quite quite significantly by then so you know we weren't going into it thinking this was going to be you know the right place we'd already had quite a few difficult meetings with the school who I didn't feel were really hearing us um in their defense they probably thought here we are with another child who you know, isn't going to be able to attend and you're asking us to do lots of bespoke things and mm. spend a load of time on this. Um, but, you know, we would have liked to have seen them try a little harder and just be a little bit kinder. Um, and that first day was very, very difficult because um, the Ed Psych had said that that should be an enhanced transition and that um, she should be able to have a graduated transition so that she should be able to leave should she needed to because, you know, she'd need to fill in control of that. However, school said that she um, would need to stay. So that first day went very badly wrong. Um, and she had quite a distressing episode at that on that, on that morning and asked me to come and get her and school said I couldn't. Um, and they refused and didn't let me get her. Um, and then she was, I wouldn't say that was the sole reason she was unable to go back, but it certainly for her meant she wasn't able to go back. Um, and it became a very weird kind of period then because I just wanted someone to say sorry and we muffed up, um, but they wouldn't do that. And it became a weird kind of, argument really an email argument and I just found it really strange and the funniest thing was that I was so kind of distressed and baffled by this stage with how communication was with the school um I was just telling her I was on the dog walk and I was telling one of the old ladies that lives in the block of flats where I live and she was like well it's just not kind is it you can't leave a kitty like that in that state and you know she just put it in such a simple term and I thought yeah, what you know? There's me trying to kind of give this intelligent. You know, even the old lady in my block of flats is thinking that this is a child who was unwell, distressed. Yeah. You know, why keep a child in in that environment all day? But they're doing it. I mean, do they think that it's sort of tough love? I know that that language appears somewhere in the book. Is it? Do they, do they think that they by sort of having high expectations and all of that stuff that that they aren't going to to you know to allow the child to have to to reach for safety too easily right that, it comes back to that resilience thing do you think that that was essentially what was behind it that they were trying to help her acclimatize to a to a you know to a different much bigger more harsh environment um that it's sort of like uh 
throw her in at the deep end sort of thing. I think she'll so. learn to swim. I think so. Yeah, I think so. And I think that the success was because it um she ticked the morning and afternoon attendance box, which is bizarre because I think if schools can talk to parents and see where they're at, they could have seen clearly where we were at from those meetings that we'd requested beforehand, where we mm. were at. We just wanted her to have as positive experience for as long as it lasted. We were very realistic about it. They weren't, you know, they were very much, well, we're, this is us. And this is what we want her to achieve. I mean, we were way beyond that by that stage. Yeah. And and this was the, the, there were problems even before this, weren't there? In terms of the transition, was it the case that you that that they that the school wouldn't confirm whether or not she had a place because they weren't sure whether they would have the funding in place? There was some like bureaucratic reason because yeah, she had got an very EHCP. Kafka, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it got very Kafkaesque by this point. We had the school was saying that they wouldn't accept her unless she had the highest level of funding. The LA was saying, well, school can't say that. And what actually happened is we were on the last in our school to find out <clears throat> where her place was. So you can imagine you've got this highly anxious child where all the other children are talking about where they're going. The one that actually needs to know um, doesn't know. And I'm trying to find out. And in the end, I took, I decided it was better just to lie to her and say she had that school place when we didn't know because her anxiety was so high. Mm. Um, I thought it was better that she had something to kind of, you know, some clarity over it. Um, but yeah, there was this kind of bizarre argument going on between the school and the LA and what it actually amounted to when we had that meeting, the one I've drawn where I walk out crying is that, that she was offered Lego club. And you just think you wanted all that money to send her to Lego club. What? <laughs> Right. what's going on and I don't know actually reading between the lines whether it was just school trying to say we don't want to take her and putting the blocks in the way with the LA over it who mm. knows I have no idea but I you know I don't most people we met during this have been pretty pleasant and amenable and just a bit stuck with these systems but I do have to say that last bit was pretty atrocious really um we'd had someone that from the local authority who said that they'd red flagged three children in the local authority that they were very, very concerned about. And our child was one of them. Well, what did they do with that knowledge? I don't know. Mm. It didn't seem like there was anything bespoke that happened. It's mad that, isn't it? That you would use that language of a red flag. It just sounds like it was a stick to hit you with by saying your child has been red flagged, but they're not saying what actually that means in terms of additional support, you know, you would imagine that a red flag would come with some sort of provisions attached. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, and so what happened then? So, so like I, I've, I've sort of understood, I've had this conversation with a few of the parents whose, whose children have struggled to attend school. Um, and they often say that at first, it, this actually, to be fair, this doesn't sound like it's your experience, um, but that at first you get sympathy for a while and they're like oh it's okay don't worry you know they'll come around sort of thing and then after a few weeks the tone changes and it becomes more uh, it seems like there there's an assumption that there's something wrong in the family home that there's something wrong in the parenting in the child itself rather than in the system would that be a fair way to characterize what you experienced in the weeks following that refusal to go in I think as for 
a little bit different. I think it felt like the run-up to going to secondary felt there was quite a lot of meetings and there was a lot of energy and things and activity around that, mainly coming from me trying to kind of get things in place and get sorted. And then it feels like that after that first day, apart from a few people arguing the toss about whether that was a panic attack because there wasn't hyperventilation, um, yeah, that's unbelievable. So they were, they were just, they were, yeah, they were, they were taking issue. You said my daughter had a panic attack. She was freaking out on that first day, and they said, well, it wasn't technically a panic attack because, you know, like box ticking approach to whether or not you had a panic attack. Yeah, and we were just in this back and forth, um, bizarre email exchange over that. But actually, in terms of when we were then at home, um, nothing seemed to happen. I was sort of expecting there to be lots of activity. You know, we'd had this intense however many years around this. You know, we've been shown colour gradients of where our child be at, you know, for the rest of their life based on this attendance percentage. But then suddenly when we were at home, it seemed to all go quiet. Um, Then it actually went very, very slow. Because what happens is then for us, because we then had an EHCP, we were then requesting something else. Well, that's when everything slows down because the LAs don't want to put any money (laughs) or they haven't got any money to give you anything else. Um, So actually then you're in this real slow kind of cogs attack because you're trying to ask for things and and they're stalling on that. Yeah. Yeah. And and so you, you it sounds like you, you said the word Kafkaesque and you you know, you, you then it seems entered this world of, of endless meetings with people. And it's, it's some of them there's one point in the book, somebody comes around to your house and asks a load of questions and you were like, I don't really know who that was <laughs> or what they did with that information. It's just this weird sort of endless parade of of uh, bureaucracy that you're going through. And there's an, an interesting page in the book. I know we just mentioned this before we started recording. Um, who you might meet. This is quite interesting about the different types of people that you meet. And so just for the benefit of viewers and listeners. So so we have the jobs worth up here. He's got a speech bubble saying, I am meeting you today, but I will not be your point of contact. There are a number of different subdivisions to this role. And then you've explained you will meet people who are very interested in themselves and the importance of their role. They will fill in the meeting with jargon and nonsense, barely mentioning your child. Then we have the the pop psych. Uh, There's a chap here uh, who says, there is a lot of scientific evidence that difficult births play play a huge role in brain development. And then you say, these ones throw various facts that they've cherry-picked at you without thinking that it makes you feel even worse than you already do. And then we have the fob-off, this person down here saying... (laughs) There's a lot of those. (laughs) She's great. Don't you forget that. We will get there. And then you explain, these ones will use extreme niceness. (laughs) Even when your child has been left unattended, spinning on an office chair in the corridor for two weeks. Talk to me about the fob-offs. There's loads of those. They do that, but they've had a lovely day. And you're thinking, okay. Basically, it's it's the stalling tactic. There's so many stalling tactics and the fob-offism is a brilliant one because they use a lot of toxic positivity to do it. So you'll often go to these meetings and then you'll come out and you're, 
you think because they've ended with that there'll be a lot of the toxic positivity at the end you know you've been crying your eyes out and they'll say but they're lovely they're ever so bright and you come out and you've been blindsided by that momentarily Mm. um and then you think hang on we haven't actually done anything in that meeting we haven't actually made a plan um and in terms of so so after day one of secondary school your daughter just put the brakes on and um, and what was that like like in in terms of inside the family home like was was were you trying to get her to go at that point and she was refusing or had you sort of realized that actually the brakes were on and we were in a different place now yeah she was very 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 ill after that i would say <clears throat> she had a she did have a breakdown after that so <clears throat> we were very at the end of our kind of road anyway with it so we you know we could see then she was done I think we often maybe a couple more times of saying you know if you want to give it a go but then we realized even saying that was just causing more distress so so we stopped um and I think after that we almost saw an immediate lightness in all of us a you know that kind of just because we'd taken that pressure off all of us yeah And were you able to like were you working from home already? Like was it was it causing issues in terms of your ability to earn money, like having with having to have somebody at home? Yeah, well, we had been running a design business for quite a few years by then. So we used to do design shows and all kinds of interesting things, but I'd had to kind of really slow down with the amount that I could input. And I also didn't really have the headspace to input on that. So mm. It's sort of been gradually shifting anyway that, you know, I was doing less of that. You know, it was a husband and wife design business, but, you know, I I couldn't really do that. I couldn't, you know, put that time in. Um, And I know it's a very difficult one and kind of a slightly controversial one with parents because many parents say to me, oh, well, you know, I would want to give up work if I could to look after my child at home, but I can't because either, you know, they're on their own or um, they don't have the financial means to do it. Um, you know, it wasn't easy, but it's a horrible analogy. But the, where we were at at that time, it was the same as if she had had some, you know, she'd broken both her legs, been knocked down by a bus. I didn't have a choice. She was that ill. I had to be there um Mm. I'd never seen her like that I'd seen her getting sicker but she was very sick by this stage so it wasn't a choice I didn't have a choice yeah and it doesn't sound like you were thinking about this as a home education situation either it was just like there's just a an an unwell child here and we need to get her better yeah yeah it wasn't a lifestyle you know it wasn't no she was unwell and actually, and, that's a word, that's a kind of terminology I've used quite a lot through this, particularly with professionals. It's been quite powerful to use that. And I often talk to parents in consults, use those, use that as term, you know, say they are unwell because that's what they ultimately are by yeah. this stage. That's it. Like, like the, the phrase school refuser, it sort of sounds almost rebellious, doesn't it? It sort of sounds like, oh, wow, they're just refusing. They're just stubbornly refusing to go to school. Hence the title, can't, not, won't, right? Like, it's like, yeah. by the time you get to that point, they, um, yeah, it's not it's not just some cool little rebellious streak that's emerging here. There's something 
they're they're not well they're unwell they're not mm. right um and and how long did this did this go on for i know that like the, towards the end of the book you mentioned that you you did eventually find a provision a specialist provision um which it sounds like has been much better suited to her and that she has been attending for the last 18 months or so is that right mm. Yeah. Um, but so how long was there between that first day of secondary school and finding this other provision? Um, it's, I don't know, because it was probably a good few years. I think we I'd been looking around prior during kind of year six. I'd been looking at different things. I'd spoken really, really early on to someone um, on the phone from the PDA Society and she had given me this advice that I still pass on to other families. And, and the, she'd said, look at lots and lots of things. Go out there and look at everything because it will help you formulate an idea. So that's kind of what I was doing. I was looking at different places. Um, I saw some absolutely dreadful places as well. This is the other thing that shocked me. The other, the, the, the alternative. Some of these were, I went to one. I took my father-in-law and I think he was... I mean, he was like white as a sheet after he saw this place. This was like sheds out on this bit of farmland and they were locking kids in these little outbuildings. And I was like, how, is this a thing? Is this what people, you know, is this the alternative? I mean, there were some bizarre things I saw out there when we were looking around, but it certainly helped me formulate an idea. You know, it helped me think, okay, I don't want somewhere where they lock kids in. I don't want somewhere working on behaviour policies. You know, it, it it really helped with that. And um, and I also went on a training course. It was a year. This is years ago with Laura Kirby, who I work with now. Oh yeah. Um, and and it was brilliant. And we had a really frank conversation after, and because she runs a tuition service, and you know, I was talking to her about. Um, what's the likelihood of kids with this, you know, PDA profile managing secondary school? And she gave me the PDA stats, which I think seventy percent are um, not not in in school. Mm. And I just asked her if she knew any other tuition services near where I lived, and she put me on to one. Um, and I had a meeting with them, and they were brilliant. And um, and again, it was that honesty. I think you're searching for that honest conversations with people um, when you're going through this, and 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 I said, look, the wheels haven't come off yet, but I think they're about to. And they said, that's fine. Give us a ring in September. And so very quickly, um, when after we were at home, I, I did speak to them. And they actually supported me through a meeting um, with the school when we had the emer emergency review. Um, and so we put in this tuition service who were very, very different, very child-led, just playing games, having a nice time. Um, but I knew it was going to be difficult to convince the LA to pay for it. You know, it's a lot of money. Why should my child have that when there's lots that have nothing? Mm. Um, but I think it was, yeah, quite a powerful meeting, that last meeting with the school when the LA came and the tuition service. And we said, look, you know, we've done it your way for eight years. We've done everything you've asked us to do. And we're going to do it her way now. You know, we have to. We've got no choice. Um, that was a really difficult, poignant moment. Um, but they, the LA eventually agreed to pay for that tuition service. Right. So, you know, I am pleased that they did. They saw that that was a need for, for her to do it differently. Mm, yeah. 
for eight years of struggle. And so, like, what would you, what would you like to see? This might be a difficult question to answer because it's this is such a huge area. Um, obviously, you know, like we we have the school system that we have, and we could we could argue about whether or not it should be different or not, and we do lots of that on this podcast. But given this the system as it currently exists, what would you like to see more of or less of? What should we be doing differently in terms of responding as, as like for let's say from from the perspective either of the LA or it could be of the you know school leader or the Senko, what should schools be doing differently or what should the system be doing differently currently um to what happens now? When we were going through it, I honestly, honestly thought we were in an enigma of a family. No one said they'd seen this before. So I spent a lot of that time thinking, it's us. You know, this is a rare thing. This doesn't happen. I let a lot of people off the hook because as far as I was concerned, these people had never seen it before. Um, that puts you in quite a dark place as a parent too because mm. when you start thinking that you're an enigma of a family, not a great place to go. Um, I wish that there had been frank conversations. There's, you know, there were many opportunities to have really honest conversations with us and just say, you're not the only ones. You know, don't feel alone in this. Connect us with other groups. Um, and even they don't exist, they're few and far between, but give us different options. You know, say you don't have to do this. You can choose something else. We didn't have any conversations like that. Right. And so and so what would you advise? Like if there if there are any parents or carers, and I know that lots of parents listen to this podcast, many of whom are very concerned about their their own children. What would you advise having been through this whole thing? Um where where can people go for advice and support if they find that their child is struggling to attend? I think there's a lot of stuff now out there that will validate your experiences and where people are having conversations around this. Part of it is to feel community and connection with this, to not feel alone. That is where you start to feel empowered and that's where you start to be able to feel confident in doing things differently. Um, so I think that if you look at things like um, square peg, not fine in school, um, there's so much out there on, on Facebook. I mean, my page has got, I think now on Facebook, 33,000 followers. Um, Naomi Fisher, who writes about the same sort of stuff, about mm. the same amount of followers. There's lots and lots of us out there all having these conversations now. Um, and I think being part of something can make you feel a lot, a lot more confident and a, and, and a lot more comforted. <clears throat> We're not saying you know, we're going to be able to immediately overthrow these systems and do it differently. We're aiming towards that. The world of work has been able to do that. We want education to be as progressive as, you know, work is trying to be. But if you can get some comfort from those connections with others to know that it's not just you, um, yeah. that's really important because the LA do not offer any parenting courses on this. I mean, we've got local groups here that, you know, they're charities, um, they work with the LA, 
Um, one of them still offers ABA therapy, conversion therapy. The other one um, doesn't offer any kind of support around this at all. You know, it's still very, very old fashioned. The charities and 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 those sort of parenting groups that are linked to the LAs are very, very old fashioned still. The progressive stuff is happening online. Right. So what do you mean by conversion therapy? Um, there's applied behavioral analysis, which is ABA. Um, right. CAMs have a v- version of it called positive behavioral stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's very much locating that in the individual. So it's um, the one we have here um, is an ABA um, um, therapist. Well, they call themselves therapists, but they teach your child how to take turns use eye contact have a two-way conversation i think they even say understand jokes on their website and this is still recommended for parents with autistic children so it's very much locating it in the child that they must change and behave like other people or right yeah and so what's different about the, the place where your daughter has been for the last 18 months you said that it's much more um, positive, it's like strength-focused, it's holistic, it's child-centred. Can you explain what it is that's, what's what's the opposite of ABA? What 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 does good look the, like? Yeah, the opposite of ABA is meeting the child where they're at and you work in a way that is strength-based. It's much more positive. It's much more about in making the adaptations to the environment and it's very much based on the relationships and restorative justice, all those things. A lot of it's kind of based around that trauma-informed approaches. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's 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 recognising that these children have had a very, very difficult time prior to, you know, their other experiences have not been good. Um, and, and so it's, uh, yeah, all those words that I say to parents to look for, holistic, bespoke, flexible. Um, relationships um all of that is really really important yeah 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 thank you um and and so just lastly on this and then we'll move on to um the next part of this conversation about the drawing side of things so so you you said that you're already working as a designer did you did you start drawing these cartoons was this specifically as a way for you to sort of to process what was happening how did the how did the drawing come about and how did the the book come about yeah I mean I was sitting in a lot of meetings thinking I could see the absurdity in it and I think you know I've talked about this before but my dad was a political cartoonist so his work was very much about that seeing the satire in things um I've had to tell the LA about this when they've got grumpy of me before about some of my drawings that it's satire um They don't quite understand that. Occasionally, the uh, joke misses them. But uh, yeah, I've, it it humor is something that is often missing. You know, when we have distressing, upsetting things that happen to us, you know, the humor of it is brilliant. I mean, Heidi, that you mentioned before, we chat mm-hmm. regularly. She's got a fantastic sense of humor. Um, you know, it is absurd. Sometimes we'll, in our group of all of us in this community, we'll just send each other kind of one line about these absurd things that happen. And it's so mm. therapeutic to be able to do that. And that's often what my work is doing. It's helping parents. You know, when 
you're on your knees and you get offered a scented candle. Um, you know, it's bizarre and silly. And I wanted to show that, but also on a more serious note, for me, it was much more empowering to do this than to send long, upset emails that were going to go absolutely no nowhere. And I knew that very early on, sending these long emotional emails about the turmoil we were in and the unkindness that my childhood at times faced, mm. it went nowhere. You know, I very, I hoped that I would get met with a human that said, sorry, I very quickly learned that wasn't going to be the case. So for me, drawing has been very, very empowering and, and very therapeutic. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. And and there, there, are, there are many really amusing bits in it. There's one one favourite bit is the, what lots of people might be familiar with, the um, the smiley face thing where you go, so you, we've got in the red, um, where the, the the person saying leave me alone then we have orange is fizzy i need to move green is just right ready to learn and in the blue is um is i look tired or i feel sad or whatever and then there's a comment there's a cartoon on the next page where you're saying oh, bloody oven's gone off again and your daughter's saying are you in the red mum you know uh and did you did you get a, a mug there was a mug um i'm feeling orange today or something um, yeah fizzy yeah. mode and that was a whole program was it the just right program mm. there's another there's a sequence of, of cartoons on this on this opposite page here where i mean even um, the fact it's called just right yeah right because what's the opposite of right is like just wrong you know it's a relative term isn't it just right mm. um so this person is saying we're working through the just right program with her and you said it's dreadful at home with lexi at the moment and then they said you can use it at home too and then there's a picture of Lexi saying they just keep saying are you feeling blue Lexi but you didn't need more laminated sheets of paper and you needed you needed the right support for you um and yeah you can see how it's, it's sort of I often I've been thinking about this phrase a lot recently about the you know that who was it who said this Nietzsche or someone the the road to hell is paved with good intentions mm. you know I think it's true. Often, it's often true, and I think that all of these programs and these these ideas and these people with these job roles, they're sort of sort of well intentioned. They're trying to help, but it just somehow isn't misses the mark. If somebody should come up with a blog about that, um, yeah, absolutely, yeah, missing the mark. That's interesting. So, so what does that phrase mean to you? As a final question on this, why did you choose that? That is it just missing as it works on a number of levels, doesn't it? That that title. Why did you call the blog that? Yeah, several reasons. Uh, missing the attendance box, not ticking the attendance box. And yeah. it always just felt that things like that, like just right, maybe well intentioned, but it's it, it's just not gonna cut it, you know, when you've got such inflect when you when you've got the bigger picture is these inflexible systems. Um it's just missing the mark. They're all just missing the mark. And there's, you know, I think it's that child on that spinning office chair sitting in the corridor with a grey face. Um, point to what you're feeling. What's the point? And as my child very put it very well, not that long ago when we were thrashing it out about that again, talking about that, she said, well, what's the point? Because you've still got to stay there. Right. Right. Wow, yeah. 
Yeah, and so 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 there's a bit towards the end. Or is it in the, there's a bit towards the end where you sort of said, "I wish," as I was writing this, this is the bit that you addressed towards your daughter, where you say, um, "I wish that I could have talked about you, about like not just this small part of you, but all of the the good stuff, and to 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 shine a light on you as a person." Um, and that's that's an important part of this isn't it like this is this, she's not just this person who has like struggled to attend school she's a human being and that's the, the point that you use that language quite often you're like we're talking about a human being here right we're using all of this this um you know very bureaucratic language to describe you know a, a very vulnerable unwell human being and then there's another bit was this in the introduction where you sort of say yeah it's here it says, I think that we as the adults still have a lot of learning to do. We need to start with sorry. Sorry this happened to you. Sorry we didn't hear you. I know you tried so long, so hard for so long. Um, yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? We're not getting this right currently. And there are lots and lots of, you know, 2 million kids, persistent absentees, in varying degrees of distress over going to school. Um, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of pain, isn't there? There's a lot of there's a lot of unnecessary suffering. I think that because we have this such a one size fits all system, and if if the child is struggling to attend, then there must be something wrong, as you say, in the child. We locate, we try to adapt, we give them drugs, give them therapy, you know, give them a flexible timetable if you're lucky. But it's all just ways to continue to get them to fit into something that that is not shaped like they are. I don't, it's just really, I mean, and obviously Twitter isn't always the best place to look at stuff, but it just feels like we're in these two opposing camps. And, you know, when we've got the attendance um, argument going on, it is just about compliance and get them in. And I don't know what that's about. I don't know why adults are so fixated on that. Because, I mean, I would have thought that the goal is to have raise future humans that understand themselves and are able to advocate for themselves. You know, I don't want to raise, you know, maybe this is my fault as a this you know newfound feckless parent that I am but I don't want to raise a drone I don't want that I want a child that is a to grow up who is able to understand themselves and be a kind human being and I don't think that narrative around attendance is taking into kindness at all mm. um it's it's asking us to ignore ourselves and 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 what we feel and I just don't think that's going to be good economically for our health service um either you know we can't just carry on regardless it doesn't work like that we're complex humans and we have lots of different emotions and i think we'll be better off for understanding them and recognizing them yeah i think that we're just we're only right at the start of coming to terms with this we're seeing lots of sort of hand-wringing articles about the ghost children at the moment aren't we mm. um and lots of very heightened language like that um i think that we're only just starting to to get to grips with it and i think that hearing voices like yours and heidi's and naomi's and ellie's and all of the people who contributed to the square peg book and many others besides this is a this is a sort it feels like an important first step um in terms of 
us as a as a society as a, and as a school system in particular and at a policy level coming to terms with the scale of the problem that we're facing here you know like like there are like post covid for various reasons lots of kids have not gone back and it's not explained by the covid itself it's something else they they realized that you know that it's not serving them or whatever it might be or that they just don't want to go they'd rather not and um and more and more coercive policies more fining you know there are parents who get custodial sentences aren't there for for their children not, not attending school it's in rare cases but very difficult to see how that helps <laughs> in yeah this situation. Quite a few years ago, I was speaking to a therapist um, and she actually interestingly said to me, um, well, how does it represent that environment that your child is going into every day? How does it how does it reflect or represent the rest of her life? She said, you know, you you run your own business. You work from home a lot of the time. You've created this world that is how it is. Um, and then you're asking her to go into this place that wears a uniform and sits at a desk all day, and maybe it doesn't make sense to her. And I wonder if, as a bigger picture there, you know, we are parenting differently. We're living our lives very differently. We're working very differently, or a lot of us are working very differently. You know, we're not in Mary Poppins banks, kind of going in in suits and bowler hats. We are leading very different lives now. Maybe it isn't representative to a lot of children or reflective of the rest of their lives. Mm. Maybe it doesn't make sense. Yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I haven't really thought about that much before, about the way that the world of work has changed so much. There's that phrase, I think it might be an Irving, um, Irving Welsh book, if you like school, then you'll love work. I love that you know, one. <laughs> It's great. Um, but yeah, the idea that that work, yeah, right. You know, it's basically school is kind of a nine to five situation. They, they increasingly wear little gray suits and, you know, um, have uniformity in terms of, you know, what bag you're allowed to carry and things like that. Like there's lots of lots of uniformity. Um, well, again, I, jo I joked about that in the book. There's the shoes. We were given mm. the uniform for the school we had. And That's they right. were actually set shoes. And we were like, I can't see where you'd wear them unless you're a police person or a traffic warden. When would you ever wear those shoes in any other walk of why do they have to wear those shoes? And did it also there's a there's a line in there was it Lexi saying, What does razor shine mean? Was there some instruction <laughs> that said you have to buff them until you raise a shine in other words? The you shoes have to, have to be able to raise a shine. Polished. Polished yeah. shoes. It's very difficult to. I mean, that's a, that's a proper army army thing, isn't it? Like shine mm. your shoes. It's like discipline for the sake mm. of it. Um, or what? We'll all fall into disarray. I don't know what the fear is. We will all domino effect into disarray. I don't know. Chaos will. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think that as far as I understand the argument for that stuff, they, they people talk about broken windows, don't they? If you come across that idea. I think it was was it the policy you know like how new york used to be like the murder capital of the world in the 70s it was like really lawless and it was like unpoliced um ghettos and so on and then 
they cleaned it up in the 80s and they had this sort of so-called broken windows approach to um to essentially you know um criminal justice and so if there was the slightest thing if you, if you saw a kid throwing a stone through a window or doing graffiti on a train you would throw the book at them because you know if you draw the line there then you're having an argument about graffiti and you're not having an argument about all of the all of the homicides right and so in schools you know if you make it so that like you do an equipment check and you make and you make a huge song and dance out of it if a kid doesn't have a spare pen in their bag then it seems ridiculous but the argument goes that that at least then a they've they've got equipment and b like you're not having conversations about you know chewing gum and throwing things around and dropping litter and swearing at teachers and what have you you know you've you've set the you've set the line you've set the standard really high i think that that's the rationale and there you know there are lots of schools that have those that kind of an approach to behavior management and often they get very good results um because you know there's there's um less time for example you know they, these schools that have silent corridors right so the kids just like march really quickly to the next to the next lesson and that saves five minutes a day and that adds up to you know 25 minutes a week and across a school year that's like a lot of additional learning and so on you know you could add you could have more to that conversation but i think that you know and again you know good intentions i think that the people who do that do it with the best of intentions they're not doing it because they are you know drunk with power and they're trying to make children's lives a misery they genuinely think that this is the way especially and it's especially often framed in terms of disadvantage it's like if you want to improve outcomes for kids from disadvantaged backgrounds this is how you do it um and and like i say you know it comes from a good place and it's well intentioned but it's not seeing the underneath stuff is it it's no. not seeing what could be going on for those children when they're yeah. No, well that's that's the concern that I have with that. Like e even if even if those approaches get good results in terms of exam results, because that's the thing that you're measuring, there's a load of other stuff happening in those human beings that you're not measuring. Um and what is not being addressed, you know, if if they aren't having uh their their personhood acknowledged or listened to if they don't ever get to make a, a meaningful decision or a choice about what they learn or how they learn it if everything's sort of done for them and micromanaged um that might be a good way to get them to get good exam results but what happens when they leave school and there isn't this sort of sergeant major figure there to tell them to shine their shoes or else you know because life isn't like that is it you have to sort of become self-sustenant at some point and but i don't also really we're not see... all going to come out the same i think you know if we have an education system that's the idea that we all get nine gcses at a certain grade it's not possible you know we're all different as humans we are all mm. have our strengths and our you know i can say that wholeheartedly as an a-grade student in some areas and definitely not in others you know when you can push it onto people as much as you like, but I just don't think it works like that. I don't think we're all designed to all come out exactly the same. Let's education. Hello, friends. If you're enjoying this episode, and indeed if you've enjoyed any other episodes in this series of podcasts, and you would like to support the Rethinking Education Project in some way, you can do so in a number of ways. First of all, just by sharing an episode with other people, giving us a thumbs up, liking, subscribing, all that stuff is much appreciated. 
There's also Patreon. If you are able and willing to contribute financially, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash repod. That's R-E-P-O-D. Depending on which level you choose, you will receive some free stuff. Not free, is it? You're paying for it. But you do get different levels of stuff. One of them being a free ebook of the book Fear is the Mind Killer that I co-authored with my amazing friend Kate McAllister. You can also get a searchable audio transcript of every episode to date, which is actually kind of amazing. And you can also access the online course Self-Regulated Learning Superpowers, which includes loads of practical strategies for harnessing the power of metacognition, self-regulation and oracy in the classroom and indeed in your own life. So you can get all of that stuff at patreon.com forward slash repod and if you'd rather make a one-off donation you can do so at buymeacoffee.com forward slash repod any such contributions are very welcome indeed and help keep the rethinking education project sustainable for the long term there are links to both those donation sites in the show notes okay let's now get back to our fascinating conversation with eliza fricker so so let's talk about your your own experience of school if we could if you could take us back what what kind of school did you go to what was your experience of school well you can read all about that when thumbsucker comes out in december oh so right actually, okay so my next book is um uh autobiographical comic called thumbsucker um about my uh, childhood growing up um undiagnosed autistic in 1980s suburbia mm-hmm. um so yeah i went to um just a regular primary school in my house um did i like primary school i'm just trying to think it's such a did i like primary school i think i liked some of it i'm i'm quite a doer i'm quite a maker i'm quite creative so i enjoyed that element um I had kind of a few close friends but I found it quite quite a lot I think to go every day um this is something I've talked about as many of us had reflected on our own attendance I think I was quite fortunate to grow up in the time that I did because um I did have quite a lot of days off myself actually I've realized um those mm-hmm. were days probably that I was feeling quite tired out by school um so it's always a kind of bright bright kid at school and would probably be seen as quite involved in school but that took its toll to do that every day so I did have a lot of days off um I was very lucky because I had a my dad was a artist and illustrator so he worked from home so I was very fortunate that I could have quite a few days off with him and go down the dump and Mm. It was a different time then, wasn't it? Often, if you had, if like kids missed school, then they didn't even notice. <laughs> they didn't really take registers. No. I remember my my friend Kate McAllister. She just didn't go to school for like the whole of year ten or something. She just used to go cycling and what have you, just go around the yeah. shops, and nobody mentioned it. Nobody was really. They were like, "Oh no, she's came back. Oh no, that's that's annoying. She's going to be really behind." But yeah, it was a it was a different time, wasn't it? Yeah, and I think because I was quite you know bright and able, they were quite happy when I was there. That seemed to do my bit and contribute and get mm. my work done. So yeah, had a lot mm-hmm. of time off though. Yeah, 
Right. And the, so was it primary that you had time off or secondary as well? All through. Yeah, all right. through. And I think actually second, again, I think primary was kind of a lot easier. But I think secondary, I struggled a lot more with, I I started out, I went to a sort of small, um, quite academic girls school. And it was just when they were changing GCSEs, I think they, you couldn't, I think you had to do a language um, and, and my parents were always very good kind of advocates for me and I remember when we had to choose our options and it would mean I could do one less art subject so um I, that was when I moved schools to a comprehensive that in West London that where they were still letting us do not have to do the language and I could do an extra sort of art creative subject mm -hmm. so I went there but um I really struggled with that because it was so massive and it was pretty rough and ready. Um, it was, yeah, a little bit of, uh, quite a lot of survival, I should say, going somewhere like that. There was a lot of slamming into lockers and, yeah, scary mm -hmm. people. So that was quite tricky. So. Yeah, yeah. And you said that you were that you were undiagnosed autistic. Did you, did you receive a diagnosis in adulthood? Oh, was it, were you doing yeah, things? I only got my diagnosis in June last year, so very recent. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that that was something. I think when your child's diagnosed, it's probably quite quite high chance that one or both of you is probably neurodivergent, mm -hmm. and it's a good thing. It's a good thing to explore that really, and to find out more about about yourself. So. Um, I had a, a really positive experience of that because mine was um, a neuroaffirmative um, therapist. So um, they, they're very good at kind of positively reframing. Look, I've got this ginormous cat you can I see. I was about here. to say, it looks like a <laughs> panther. It's, absolutely it's a, lion, a, Norwegian, a Norwegian forest cat who doesn't really <laughs> understand his size. So, um, yeah, he's just here saying hi. He's amazing. So it was... He, it was a really positive experience, actually, for me, because um, it was very much about reframing a lot of those negative narratives. We're very hard on ourselves, particularly when we're late diagnosed, about a lot of those difficulties that we do have yeah. and why we find things very difficult. And, mm. and, and we're not very nice to ourselves about that stuff, which I think can potentially lead on to why with our own children, we sometimes, when they struggle, say, well, I have to get on with it. Yeah. Actually, we have to do some big lessons on that and sort of say, well, actually, was that okay for us? No, it wasn't. Yes. Excuse me one second. I think I might have a sneeze coming. <laughs> oh, it's, oh, it's Are you allergic to my cat? <laughs> <laughs> he is gone, actually. Never mind. The cat's um, gone. There you go. There's the... <laughs> right. Oh, I'm glad that you had a positive experience with that. I know it's a big deal, isn't it? Um, having to re like you say to reevaluate mm. the way that you've thought about yourself for many years um do you think it's made you feel more kindly towards yourself more sort of compassion yeah, like, self-compassion I think so I think it's um I think when you're trying to do so many things that are difficult and you think why why can other people do that and it's so difficult for me it mm. it, it really helps with that stuff a lot more compassionate um and allows you to unmask because that was something and I've talked about it before but particularly going through it with my own 
daughter going to those meetings and going into that school environment was pretty unpleasant. I mean, it wouldn't be pleasant anyway because of what I was having to deal with, but it wasn't nice anyway to go back into that school environment for me. Um, And so I was masking quite a lot when I was there. I was masking quite a lot anyway in day-to-day life. Um, And that certainly helped me to not do that and feel more comfortable. So I actually feel a lot more confident as a person because I'm not masking anymore. You know, masking was excruciating. I kind of... (laughs) I kind of cringe sometimes actually looking at how much I was masking at that time, trying to fit in. Can you give us an example of of how that masking process would play out? What kinds of things would you be masking? I think just putting on an enormous front. I think it just kicks in. It's not something I was doing kind of... um, I didn't know I was doing it. It would just kick in with people. I just would never really feel comfortable um and so I would put on this front that I was comfortable and actually it was a kind of ramped up version of myself if you like it was kind of a and I think this is where that kind of um sometimes you hear other um I've heard a lot of uh, late diagnosed autistic women say that they're, they're considered too much often you know we're too much or we're um you know putting putting on this kind of confident front if you like that isn't actually representative of how we're feeling at all um and not wanting to show that things are very difficult and uncomfortable a lot of the time um putting myself into group situations or things that I thought I should do um was certainly something that I think when you are a parent you have to do a lot of things like that that you know going to sort of play groups or parent meetings and all those things that you have to do which you don't want to do yes it's very difficult yeah thank you and so I'm also as you know really interested in this idea of significant learning um we've just heard one big episode that happened with you recently as you look back over your life um are there any other moments or it could be it could be things that happen within formal education often it's more informal um, the big sort of things that have shaped you as a person or shaped your thinking in some way. Um, does anything spring to mind as you think back through like what 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 are the what are the key learnings that have that have really mattered for you? Um, I think I've probably been quite a self-learner through my life. Um, I would say my dad was pretty big influence on on my learning through my life. I think for me, it was always very much about that connection first and foremost with my learning. It had to feel important to me and it had to be someone understanding and listening to me. So growing up, I I just had that real connection with my dad and he just kind of got me and I have really positive experiences through learning with him, drawing with him, going mudlarking with him just mucking about with the cats and sitting around it wasn't always we didn't do big days out I know families now do all this stuff like they go places and do stuff you know we really didn't my dad sat around smoking roll-ups in tracky bottoms and mucking about and but he was really imaginative and would make up silly games and to me that was just brilliant having that growing up he was probably the person that I felt you know influenced me the most with all of that stuff 
Mm. And so, and he was a, a political cartoonist for a newspaper, was he, or for magazines or something? Yeah, he was uh, the Guardian and the Telegraph. So each side of the <laughs> the fence. He was, oh right, uh, really? Yeah, yeah. So, um, so he had that kind of humour, and we would just sit there and draw, and we would draw comic strips together. Um, and we lived in a really boring town in suburbia, so we would go out in the car and drive around, and we had silly games we made up. We had the front garden awards, so when we'd walk to school, we would give awards for the worst front garden, but we'd critique <laughs> it like it was the best front garden. So we just had a really fun time, and, and that, for me, was just, you know, when other things weren't so fun, like being in school or, you know, not feeling like I belonged a lot of the time or connected with people, that having that connection with him was, you know, paramount. And something then I looked for growing up, you know, someone who would stimulate me like that intellectually and I'd have that sort of fun time with. So, mm. Yeah, well, I mean, obviously you can see that like his influence come through in your drawing. I really, really love your drawings. I know that you're sometimes quite self-deprecating where you sort of say, like, I know it I know it looks like I can't really draw very well, but I actually can. But I don't think that it I don't think that it does look like that. Like they're they're brilliantly drawn. I know that sometimes they're sort of, you know, like they're yeah, they're purposefully like like simplistic images, but you're clearly an incredibly talented illustrator. Um and like you know, like we we've spoken about this before, haven't we? About how like it's not easy to draw a stick person, even like you think, oh, a stick person, yeah, mm -hmm. like three lines and a circle for the head. But if you look at the kind of stick person that an illustrator can draw, you just like, how do they make that stick person look so amazing? And why can't I do that? And it's just yeah, there's a there's a lot to it, isn't there? But also, you you just have this keen. I, you know, that like you can see the, you know, like seeing the humor in things, um, the absurdity of things, and being able to satirize those. You can see your father's very strong influence there. Um, is there anything else in the, in the significant learning column that brings to mind as you look back, things that have shaped you? Um, no, probably again, more sort of people I've known and who've really sort of inspired me you know really good close friendships you know I've been really fortunate with that living in the same place over half my life now I've you know they were fundamental to me those teenage friendships that you know carried me through and we had you know again just great time you know ever so pretentious I had one friend we would quote the Kenneth Williams diaries to each other and read that out and silly things like that but you know those people have been really influential people that have you know, shared those interests and we, you know, had lovely times chatting and sitting about and, you know, none of us, I suppose, were those kind of big sociable people. We just had a nice time together mucking about and mm -hmm. chatting and that's been really nice. Nice. Good stuff. All right, let, let's wrap this up then in, with, the, with this final section of the podcast, which is the rethinking education bit. And it often centres around three questions. Positives, challenges, and solutions. Um, all all quite big things to tackle. Um, and obviously, you you know, like you've mainly written and spoken about the challenges that you've experienced. Um, does anything sometimes people say, actually, I find it really quite hard to to think of positive stuff. Is it can you think of anything that you would say, actually, yeah, this is really good about what happens currently. We're getting this right currently. What, what do you in like our current up? education system yeah i think i think getting the 
chance to try out different subjects is a really good thing and I think that's something I'm not I'm not necessarily agreeable to the other so I don't think that you know the specialist system works either because it's separating it out and often they can't offer everything that that mainstream school can do so in terms of sort of having access to different subjects you know I have really fond memories of history when I was at secondary school because I had a brilliant history teacher and I think that's something probably when you're in a small specialist setting you don't get to meet all those different um, teachers or access those different subjects so that's something but I think there needs to be the flexibility with that that you can drop in and out of that um, a lot more than you currently can but I think that having access to those different subjects um, it is a really important thing and, and and a really valuable thing because we don't know what we want to do. I know there's a lot of emphasis right now. What is it, 14 or 15, you're meant to choose what you want to do to carry you through. I don't think we should have to do that, I think, but having the access to lots of different things is a good mm -hmm. idea. Yeah, definitely. And I think we could do more of that quite easily, couldn't we? We could make mm -hmm. it more flexible. So, for example, that you're allowed to pick up subjects and then drop them again and then pick them up again later on. You know, like I think I think it might have been when I was talking to Naomi, she was sort of saying, you know, when children are self-directed, when they don't have to go to school, they often sort of pick up a, like something that they used to be really interested in years ago and they'll get really back into Lego all of a sudden or Minecraft or whatever it was. And my son is doing it now. He's gone back and he's playing some sort of old school computer games. Um, mm. And... It's just just the natural way of the natural cycle of, of of life, isn't it? That we pick things up and put them down, and then maybe sometimes go back to them later on. But we don't do that, do we? Currently, that like we just have this sort of linear system. You get to like you, like you mentioned, choosing your options in year nine, and that's all the all the option that you get. If you don't go on to do A, a levels, that's the only point at which you get to make a choice, and it's an irreversible choice. And it's often also Hobson's choice because schools have got ways of sort of gently but but quite insistently nudging children towards certain channels so that they will take the the combination of results that will make the school's overall results look better mm. but it's like what can you do for the school rather than what can the school do for you um so there's definitely more that we could do on that front but i totally agree like the, the fact that we have these places where people can go and try out these different things and learn about different subjects beautiful yeah uh, we should we should extend that idea <laughs> and make it a bit yeah. more flexible but and also with with the combining that with giving the teachers more autonomy you know i'd love to see it mm. where these teachers had more of them in that classroom you know we yeah. hire people for what they bring that would be fantastic you know having different kinds of people because that's what helps us to formulate ourselves as you know well-rounded humans is being able to interact with lots of different people and and mm. hear their stories that would be great if teachers personality was much more embedded into that i think i love that idea thank you for that right let's move into challenges i mean there's no shortage is there in this in this area what would you say are the major issues and let's let's focus on this the, you know the, the topic of your book about being being the parent of a of a of a young person who's struggling to attend um what do you think are the major issues with the way that things currently work or don't work yeah i mean that's huge isn't it i think that, that it being such a standardized system is is a massive one and i think that 
the outdated model that it is, you know, I said earlier that I don't, you know, we were talking about it not being reflective of how things are now. And I think that, you know, let's look at workplaces, let's look at how things are done in the rest of society. This is the only place that is still stuck and digging its heels into doing it this way. Let's look at making something where it's much more reflective of what they're going to leave and go into after. Mm-hmm. You know, let's make it so that they can access it a lot more there's a lot more flexibility to how they access that i'm not saying so that they can all you know be like grange hill at the bus stop smoking cigarette i'm not saying that you know most children don't want to do that but we need to bring in the other things you know we know that people are a lot more emotionally intelligent and aware now our kids are i'm amazed at what they know and talk Mm. about now um let's bring that into it much much more um and let's have a lot more flexibility over it and let's not other people for being neurodivergent or different or other which is what this system does um that's one of the hardest things that i have to have conversations about with my child is them saying all my friends are this way we're all this but you know why is it so difficult for us to go to this place why why can't we all just go to the same place why you know these are the conversations it's an othering system and that's a very difficult thing as a parent to try and keep you know instilling all this positivity around understanding ourselves when they they spend a huge chunk of their life having to go to a place that doesn't accept or understand them in the way that they need to be accepted and understood mm. Yeah. And so moving into this into this solution then, what what would you like to see change to move away from this othering standardized system that we have? I think we need to think a lot more about different models and how this can be. I think this idea of this institution of school needs to change and I think we need to think about learning options and different places you know I almost think we could even look at things like the youth club model and how that was and how children could use that space and access it themselves but bring that into that environment with learning as well I think we need to move away from this idea that without rules and regulations we end up in disarray and chaos I this low demand thing that Naomi and I work on and talk about this low demand parenting Mm. you know it works it's just about talking to people on a level and connecting with people on a level where they feel they can engage it actually at the minute most of our education system is based on this sort of crowd control we have these huge schools if we could have places that were smaller with more adults where the children have more autonomy and we work collaboratively, I think we would see a very different outcome. And I think it would be a really positive one. I don't doubt that. Mm. I think you're right as well. Could could you please just explain a little bit about, and I know that you've been doing this work with Naomi around low demand parenting, and it's very popular, isn't it? You get huge numbers of people coming to these webinars that you've been running. Can you please explain for anyone who isn't familiar, what is low demand parenting? It's really looking at what the demands are that we place on children, because actually a lot of young people place a lot of demands on themselves without needing a lot of external demands. 
So what it really is, it's kind of, to use a really glib old phrase, it's kind of pick your battles, look at what is important. And for when we look at that as a model, we start to look at how we do things and how we parent. And perhaps we don't need to put in that authority as much as we do. Perhaps we can work collaboratively with our children. Perhaps we don't need to use punishments and rewards. Perhaps we can talk to them and reason with them and work in that way. Um, and that's something that, you know, a lot of places used to work like that. And, you know, I don't want to heart back that my dad was this, you know, perfect human because he's not but actually when he was an artist he was also a youth worker and he worked with a lot of kids that were considered hard to reach kids and the reason it worked in these places these adventure playgrounds with youth workers is because they were non-hierarchical these kids would just have a nice you know they would have nice times with these people they would often Mm. find school very difficult because it was based on authority and control these children who some of them have, have had very difficult times in their in their own homes, mm-hmm. related and 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 connected really well, and were really proactive because they were in a different environment with adults that actually spoke to them in a different way, and that was often working collaboratively um, and and on a level. And I think we can we can take a lot from that. I think that could work. Well, part of that is a little bit of the principle of low demand parenting, and that's what I think we could bring much more into our into our education system. Because when you connect with young people, I think you'll find that you have a much better outcome when they feel they can relate and and feel valued. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Just that that language. I mean, it feels like we've just gone in the opposite direction to that in recent years. Like there is a very high level of demand that's extraneously put on children around attendance and punctuality and uh, and the demands that are made of them when they're, when they're in the classroom, demands for high levels of compliance. Um, there's, you know, um, lots of schools run these, they call them like high volume detentions. So there's like often hundreds of kids or like in the high, high double figures of kids in some big centralized detention in the hall every night for like minor um you know infractions of the uniform policy or if they didn't have a spare pen or if they were a minute late to a lesson or whatever it might have been um there and and i think that that i i don't know i don't know but it wouldn't surprise me to discover that 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 move that we've made towards many more sort of strict um approaches to behavior management in recent years is at least partly responsible for this very high number of of absentees that we're suddenly seeing that those kids don't like that level of demand being made of them and they're voting with their feet um again i have no data to back that up um but that would be my hunch i can see that there's a there's there's a clear line through there isn't there yeah and i think that I mean, I'd, I mean, I thought about it quite a lot, actually, when I see some of these things being talked about, um, these these techniques. And, and I do wonder if a lot of people that I know, myself included, would have coped with that. And I don't think I would have been able to cope. Um, as someone who always wanted to do things right and not be in the wrong, I think that would have tipped me over the edge because I would have been absolutely fearful of getting it wrong. Mm. Terrified. It would have made me quite ill, I think. 
Yeah, and you hear lots of cases like that, don't you, anecdotally, of children who are like worried sick about like doing the wrong thing and getting into trouble um, when they're basically really good kids and they shouldn't have anything to worry about. But because they're mm-hmm. in this in this place which has like you know zero tolerance approaches to behavior they're just like it's heightened every time they're just thinking oh is this the moment where I'm going to get told off you know and it's Mm. very stressful um Mm. makes people unwell and you know we are where we are Mm. there's a lot to do there's a lot to do um we need to get to the we need to get to the bottom of this problem there are so many people who are suffering unnecessarily teachers as well you know teachers Mm. and school school leaders their mental health is not in good shape either like this is not all just only being experienced by children and young people um it could be so sweet (laughs) there was so this is what the thing is it's like it could be really good couldn't it like like, we're really not far off like we've got these buildings where people can go you know they're distributed reasonably around the country everyone can access one they're staffed by very kind well-meaning intelligent lovely people generally and you know we're really not far off (laughs) having a system that just centers around human flourishing and self-directed learning and and as well as having you know i'm not saying that it should just be some like 1970s child-led you know like this deregulated dystopia like you know like some people often get concerned when you talk about being Mm -hmm. child-led but allowing children to make meaningful choices over what they learn and when and how and at what level that's just so obviously a good idea and it's not beyond the wit of humankind to actually come up with a system that that allows young people to have a little bit more say over what they do to to have their voice genuinely listened to and to to be able to shape their own reality a little bit yeah that feels yeah. like that's all that needs to happen and it's we're so close it's so frustrating <laughs> but then i don't know are we i don't want to be blue but are we that close because it feels like sometimes you hear the other narrative and it feels like we're a million miles i don't know yeah i don't know I mean, yeah, it depends on what you mean by so close. What I mean is that I like like in in terms of policy, I don't think that it would take that much to mm. change, for example, Ofsted. That would help. My goodness, that would mm. help. And that's obviously a big live issue at the moment. Um, to change assessment, the way that we assess schools, because we treasure what we measure, right? And so at the moment, because it's all based around, you know, getting every possible grade out of every possible kid, then that's the game that we're playing. And we do it, you know, at, what, at any price, we'll, we'll get mm. every possible grade out of every possible kid. And actually, what's interesting is when you give kids the choice over that, often they don't choose that for themselves. They'd say, oh, yeah, you know, yeah, I'm sure that I could do 10 GCSEs, but I only need five to get into college. So I'll just do five and that's fine by me. Like I can do other stuff and socialize and have a, have a more well-rounded life. Yeah. People often make very different decisions. And so if you, if you had a system that placed human flourishing at its center, and we could have a big conversation about how you would measure such a thing, but I think that there are metrics that you could, that you could measure, like, absenteeism and mental health and um you know the number of referrals to cams and all of that stuff like there are indicators there are many many indicators um yeah if we started to measure different stuff so that we treasured different stuff 
I don't think that like it, logistically it would be that hard to make it happen. But as you say, it, this is a very, very polarized debate. Um, and I don't think that we're going to persuade everybody to go down some a different route. And I, that's why I think that the answer to this is not is not to sort of for the pendulum to swing away from this super strict knowledge rich curriculum model that we have to something that's a lot more permissive. I think the answer is to diversify the system so that those people who are into all that strict stuff mm-hmm. can still have that. The teachers can still work there. Parents, kids can still choose that. But there are many other people who, for whom that isn't working. Clearly, the data are in. And we can explore alternatives that are maybe a little bit more centred around. Oh, I mean, that's that what I often stuff say. It's about... about yeah and it's about having those options right now we don't really have those options no you know i've talked about it on my podcast i don't really want that ehcp or any of that stuff it's so boring and just you know it's another hoop to jump through when you've got an inflexible system where you have to kind of go through that to for them to acknowledge that you need more or different and it doesn't even give you that much more or different anyway it's why can we just not have a bit more choice over how we do it? You know, why can mm. we not have those meetings early on, have have a big chat about how we're not all the same and, you know, some this works for and others it doesn't. So have you thought about trying this, this or this? Oh, no, I haven't thought of that. Yeah, we'll give that a go and we'll try that. And if that doesn't work, we'll try something else. You know, mm-hmm. it, it, it's just not, we don't have that flexibility over it and we don't have those options currently. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned the podcast there, the Missing the Mark podcast, which is brilliant, by the way. I heartily recommend it. If anyone hasn't heard that, I'll stick a link in the show notes. Um, Is there anything that you would like to share with our viewers and or listeners by way of a parting comment? Uh, You mentioned earlier, you know, if people are concerned, you've got a Facebook. Is it miss? Is your Facebook page called Missing the Mark? Yeah, yeah, it's Missing the Mark. And, you know, if there is any sort of serious concerns, I'm happy to do consults one to one with families, you know, that's something that, you know, I still do regularly. Um, I was just going to end as it is stats week. um, And we're coming up to GCSEs. And I know that whatever we say, however far we go in these conversations, it will always come up, but what about GCSEs? Um, mm. So I was just going to end saying that um, <clears throat> I got an E in my maths GCSE. Um, you can see where my learning went. I was a A's and B's in my um, arts and my history and my English, but I actually got D's in my science and an E in my maths. Mm. And no one's asked to see them ever. Um, and even when had a good design business um no one said have you got a math GCSE mm-hmm. so um don't worry about it too much is what I was gonna say please yeah. don't worry about it too if much. you don't yeah it, I had Peter Gray on a while ago um do you know him he wrote a book I know the name um he wrote the foreword to Naomi's book um and he wrote a book called Free to Learn and he's very involved in the Sudbury School Okay. Um, like self-directed learning really interesting guy done lots of research around it and absolutely lots of people say but yeah you need GCSEs to get to, to, to get anywhere to get a cleaning job you know you need a GCSE and they've done research and there's loads of kids who've been through that first of all like lots of kids choose to do GCSE anyway they do it you know 
quite mm. a correspondence course. But there are like the, the the alumni from Sudbury schools where there, there are no exams, they often, you know, go on to live perfectly happy, you know, lives. They pick up qualifications, they get into universities, they run companies, you know, they they just there's no evidence that not doing those exams is actually detrimental to your life outcomes. And so the whole thing, you know, like my, my wife, she she worked in a state school for a number of years um, and she was like literally on her knees. It was so grueling. She was a year six teacher for the last few years and it's just so much stress. It's very, very challenging. And then she moved to a different school. She now works um, in a, a very sort of like low cost private school. And when it's SATS week, when all the other kids are doing SATS, they go sailing. <laughs> You know, they literally just go like sailing for the week. And it's just, I think it just happens to fall on that. I think they're going next week this year. And those kids are fine. <laughs> you know, they're really happy because they yeah, go yeah. sailing instead of, you know, all of the stress of doing that. So like, you just don't need it. And, in, you know, like, was it Debbie Kidd who, who uh, her child, um, she just said, I don't want them to do uh sats and and they they sat them out they just sort of sat and read books or whatever during that week and they went to secondary school and there was just this is no impact on you know the secondary school's treatment of them the whole thing is like this weird um i don't know what it well, how would you describe it it's this sort of this self-inflicted hardship that is just entirely unnecessary and stresses everyone out to the max mm. and just doesn't have to exist. No. And, you know, I think we we anchor onto these things, don't we? And we think we have to go through these bits and then we end up at the next bit and then we do that and we go, you know, but actually we can go like that um, mm -hmm. and it's okay. And we'll yeah. get there when we get there. Um, yeah. We will get there when we get there. Hopefully it won't be too long before we start to see some meaningful change. I feel like, I feel, I do feel very optimistic for the future, um, despite everything that we've been talking about, because I think that it's so obvious that change needs to happen. And, and especially, I think that what's really hopeful about your work and the work of the other people that we've mentioned is the parent voice, because young people don't have a vote and don't have a voice meaningfully they're not a, a political constituency and like you say those kids are often out of sight as well right like def by definition they're out of they're, they're, they're off mm. the radar they're not being seen and heard and it's sort of like out of sight out of mind um i think that's a really important bit to it actually is i think when you're <clears> a parent and you know i don't want to end on a really serious note but it is a kind of serious point Fran Morgan, who used to work for Square Peg, said this, that you get to a point and you break the trust with your child. And I think we all get to that point as a parent when we have to sit back and go, is it that important? You know, I've got a child who cannot speak, who cannot eat. Is it that important? No, your relationship with your child. And actually, it's not a bad thing to say to your child. That's not OK. You know, I've said it to my child millions of times. I'm sorry that happened to you or, you know, whatever that situation was or that wasn't OK or that person wasn't kind. It's really important because they have to know that ultimately we're there for them and not that system. It's one system. Yeah. You know, that doesn't make them. But, you know, our life and our home and the world that we create with them is way more important. 
Yeah, totally agree. I totally agree. Um, and and like I say, you know, the the fact that that so many parents and carers, the fact that your book was just to, to repeat a Sunday <laughs> Times bestseller, um, and and many other books like it, like there's something happening here. Like there is an awakening happening among parents and carers, and they vote. They have a powerful voice that policymakers and politicians will listen to, and I think that if we can figure out how to how to um, to harness and mobilize and leverage that incredible power that parents and carers have, for every one of those nine million children and young people, there's between one and two parents and carers who are often even more right. Um, mm-hmm. In that, you know, lots of ways of having families, aren't there? Um, there are many, many people with a huge political constituency who can just say, actually, do you know what? This is not good enough. Like, our kids are not happy. And if a poli- if a political party, you know, like we we're talking about all of that strife in those in those homes, you know, like two million kids who are persistent absentees and all of the stress and the meetings and the letters and the fines and all the rest of it. If if a politi- if a political party was to be able to speak directly to that and to say, we will have a policy that will take away the stress that's in your family home, we'll come up with a, a better way of doing education, we'll have flexible systems of education, we will place your child's flourishing at the center of our policy. You know, that who wouldn't vote for that? You're literally going like enacting policies that can reach into the their homes and change their family dynamics and make all of that stress go away. That's a that's a that's a vote winning situation, you know. Yeah, like the, and also potentially save loads of money on child adolescent mental health services because yeah. that's the impact, isn't it? That people are waiting on these spectral services to offer. I don't know what something. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, you might not need as much of that either. I agree, and so yeah, I think that I think that the, you can make you can make a strong case, um, and and we're we're working at the moment. I'm working with this group, uh, the Education Policy Alliance. We're about to to release our first working paper, which is on Ofsted, a consultation paper rather. We're going to put it out and get lots of people to feed into it, and it's essentially it seems to be sort of taking the the shape of a, a kind of a grassroots think tank where we sort of. It's a cross-section of parents and carers, young people, teachers, school leaders, um, sort of crowdsourcing education policy ideas, essentially. Mm. And so far, we've come up with loads of really good stuff. It's all under the radar so far. Nothing's come out yet. Um, But the next one we're going to look at is mental health and well-being. And that's the one that we've just been talking about. That's a thing that, that... an incoming, shall we say, potentially incoming education secretary of state could enact policies that would immediately make lots of people's lives better if they introduced a greater degree of flexibility and genuine student voice into the way that we go about schooling um Mm. so that kids feel like they're listened to i think that's sort of all it is you know the autonomy piece is essentially about being listened to and being respected as somebody who can make decisions for themselves um yeah, I don't think that we're that far away from a from a from a fix here. But who knows? Maybe that's just me being. Uh, it's my turn to have rose tinted glasses on. 
Well, thank you, Eliza, very much for taking the time to speak with me and to share your story. Um, and it's um, really lovely to to um, to spend some time with you and to hear as well that that you know that things worked out, you know, or started to get a lot better for your child. And um, that's a beautiful thing to hear. I certainly feel sorry that it took so long and that there are so many people in a similar boat. Um, but, you know, the other thing that I sometimes think is like, we're trying to do something really hard here. <laughs> you know, like we're trying to create an education system that works for this hugely diverse population of people. And that's no mean feat. And so I, I think that we shouldn't be too harsh on ourselves either. You know, it's we're trying to do something that's incredibly difficult. Um, and there are lots of things that are that we are getting right. We just need to fine tune you know yeah um things a little okay well thank you very much i appreciate uh you spending the time thank you very much we have a narrow curriculum which squeezes out the arts so let's rethink education there is a lack of imagination and not enough fun Children should be self-directed, showing us their way. Let them lead. Transferable skills should be the core of what we teach. Quiet.